Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr. Kat Arney. In this episode, we ask, what would have happened if Darwin had read Mendel? And what if they'd been on Twitter? Plus, something else that Darwin would have loved, an ambitious project to sequence the DNA of everything across the tree of life. On the 8th of March, I headed to the Royal Institution in London for International Mendel Day, a meeting hosted by the Genetic Society and the Mendelianum, the museum and research centre in Bruno dedicated to the grandfather of genetics, Gregor Mendel. The date is significant as it's the anniversary of the day in 1865 that Mendel presented his work on inheritance in pea plants to his local scientific society. Six years earlier, Charles Darwin, the grandfather of evolution, had published his groundbreaking work on the origin of species by means of natural selection. In 1868, he published the follow-up to his smash hit, The Variation of Animals and Plants Under Domestication, with the next bestseller, The Descent of Man, hitting the shelves in 1871. While we know that Mendel read Darwin, as evidenced by his pencil-marked copy of Origin of Species at the Abbey, did Darwin read Mendel? I was particularly fascinated to hear from one of the Mendel Day speakers, Professor Greg Raddick from the University of Leeds. He's a leading expert in the history of genetics and has been speculating on that exact scenario. So I just had to drag him out of the drinks reception at the end of the day to chat about Darwin's ideas about heredity and to bust some myths about the intellectual relationship between these two men. Well, they had no interaction as people or as uh, thinkers. Mendel read Darwin. That we know for sure. Mendel's copies of The Origin of Species and another book of Darwin's exist. They've been studied. And people who read Mendel's famous paper on his pea experiments can detect pretty reliably the passages where he seems to be responding to things that Darwin wrote. It used to be said that Darwin actually had a copy of Mendel's paper, but didn't look at it or didn't cut the pages. That's an absolute myth. What isn't mythic is that Darwin had a couple of books on his shelves, a kind of plant breeder's handbooks, which gave digests of Mendel's paper. And one of them, which gave the best digest, the relevant pages aren't cut. So that's the bit where the myth meets the reality. So Darwin had the book, but he just maybe hadn't looked at those pages. Darwin had the book with the summary, but didn't look at those pages. So what do we know about how Mendel interpreted Darwin's ideas? And then, you know, would it have mattered if Darwin had come across Mendel's ideas? Well, to take first Mendel as a reader of Darwin... Mendel's paper suggests that he was a pretty focused thinker. Uh, His paper addresses a question about plant hybrids, uh, the question of how to identify the law that governs the reappearance of characters when the hybrid character is variable. It doesn't just stay constant. So this is the thing where you you breed generations of plants together and then, surprise, one of these traits comes back again. That's right. So famously, in his case, he studied peas. And uh, among other characters, he studied color. So you've got yellow seeds and green seeds, and you cross them. And in the next generation, they're all yellow. 
But when those plants self-fertilize in the, the grandchildren generation, you get yellow, but you also get green back again. Ta-da! Ta-da! <laughs> so Mendel's paper is concerned with explaining that kind of a pattern. And when you examine his copy of Darwin's books, all of his annotations are just on the stuff that interests him. So natural selection, biogeography, geology, embryology, nothing. Mendel's interested in hybrids, and he's interested in what Darwin has to say about the difference between a species and a variety, just the stuff that Mendel's already interested in. So that's Mendel's interest in Darwin. Let's do the counterfactual thing, the thought experiment. What if Darwin had read Mendel? Would it have made a difference? You know, would we have got to a theory of genetics and, and wrapped everything up much faster than the 150 years it's taken us? And, and just for those reasons, a lot of people have shared that fantasy. If only Darwin had read Mendel, you could have fast-forwarded biology from 1865 to 1935. If only they'd been on Twitter, just like tweeting about stuff, it, it would right. all be so easy. That's right. Alas, uh, the consensus for decades now, and I'm part of the orthodoxy here, is that if Darwin had read Mendel, it wouldn't have made a bit of difference. It would have been just one more fact put on the pile with all of the other facts. It would be interesting. He would have regarded it as instructive, but in a very limited way for a very particular domain within a much wider set of topics than Mendel was ever interested in. So this seems to strike me about the difference between Mendel and Darwin and from what you talked about, the idea that Mendel was just really focused on what happens when you breed these plants together and Darwin was like, really big picture, I've got all these pieces of data, I've got information about the planet and species and my barnacles and how do I bring them together into this big picture. So did Mendel's like niche stuff about plant breeding not really fit in there? Well, it's more that it fitted in too well. If... Darwin had read Mendel, uh, he would have assimilated it to experiments that he'd already done with snapdragons. So we talked about Mendel's peas and the yellow and the green. Well, Darwin did an experiment that, looking back, looks an awful lot like Mendel's. He had these snapdragons, one the common variety, one a peloric variety with these petals that were kind of different. So when, you, when he crossed the common and the peloric, all of the offspring showed the common form. When they self-fertilized, you got three common forms to one peloric form. That looks ever so Mendelian. And so given that background, had Mendel been read by Darwin, it would have been just another case of what Darwin called preponderant inheritance. That is to say, cases where one parental character prevails over another. And it was, in his view, something that happens sometimes, except when it doesn't happen. It was part of what he was trying to explain, but he didn't regard it as somehow the bedrock phenomenon. So one of the things I know about Darwin that's always fascinated me was that he didn't really go with this kind of, the concept now that we have of, of genes being inherited from mum and dad in the way we understand on chromosomes, that he had this idea of gemmules, these kind of little blobs that came from the body and then mixed and matched together when he made a baby. So was it more like Mendel's ideas just didn't, didn't sort of fit in this paradigm that he was thinking of? Well, it's absolutely true that for Mendel's purposes, all of the action when it comes to the passing on of parental characters is in the production of, of egg cells and pollen cells. 
Darwin's hypothesis of pangenesis, which is the closest thing that Darwin has to a theory of inheritance, takes as its basic premise that the whole body is generative. The whole body, in Darwin's view, is involved in production and reproduction. So he called it uh, pangenesis just for that reason. Everything is making all the time, and his claim his hypothesis, which is the term he used, was that every part of the body is constantly throwing off these tiny, as you say, gemules or gemules, no one's entirely sure how to pronounce it, these tiny particles. Uh, and the whole body, the whole system is swarming with all of these particles. And once they're thrown off, they multiply. And eventually, if they find the right attachment point, they will grow into the same part that threw them off. That's their function. So Darwin thinks that he's able to explain not just inheritance, but the regrowth of parts, reproduction, uh, really odd phenomena from our point of view, like what he calls the functional independence of body parts, the way that parts of bodies seem to have a life of their own. All in terms of this single rather simple set of ideas about the body constantly throwing off these gemules, pangenesis. Uh, and so he would have explained Mendel's pattern, the same pattern as the, the Snapdragon pattern he got, as to do with what happens when one set of gemules from the yellow seeded peas meets the set of gemules from the green seeded peas, and the yellow ones just prevail. That doesn't have to happen. In other cases, you get a kind of union, and then the characters blend. In other cases, there's actual antagonism, and then you'll get a kind of blotchiness. But Darwin thought that he could account for those kinds of patterns and vastly more by this theory that almost no one accepted. I do love looking back at, at the history of science. You sort of see how these ideas have evolved and you bring together Darwin, you bring together Mendel, you bring together the work of the early 20th century geneticists and then the sort of the molecular gene. And now we know that we have DNA and it encodes proteins and mm. now we have the body and all this kind of thing. Um, do you think we've got to a synthesis? Do you think that there is anything in the kind of ideas that we have now that are particularly right or maybe like might be proved to be wrong? Well, um, one of the things that I think that's so instructive, and I found this today at the conference sharing Darwin's ideas on pangenesis, is that we live at a moment now when there's a lot of openness to the possibility that genes might not just be determining traits in a kind of sublimely determinist way, but might be interacting with other genes, with developmental contexts, with environmental contexts. Always very wobbly. It's very wobbly. And in a lot of ways, Darwin is more stimulating company than Mendel for being flexibly minded about where one might look for the next instructive phenomena. So I think there's still room for both of them in the conversation. And finally, every so often I see headlines in science magazines saying, you know, was Darwin wrong? Uh, was, was Darwin wrong? 
Well, of course he was wrong. Mendel was wrong too. Most science turns out to be wrong, and that's in some ways the beauty of science, uh, the beauty of history, the beauty of knowledge. You, you don't expect that what people thought 150 years ago or 100 years ago is just going to be preserved in aspic. One hopes that it won't, that things will advance. So, of course it isn't right, but what else would you expect? The important thing is that it proved to be fruitful. Uh, more and more I've come to appreciate that the ideas that turn out to be stimulating, that spur creative work, um, that's a huge value in its own right, not to be dismissed. And both Darwin and Mendel, in their very different ways, produced bodies of work which have been enormously stimulating to other investigators. So we've learned in a huge amount from the two of them. Uh, so we should be eternally in their debt without by any means thinking that they got it all right. This is Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Genetics Unzip and online at geneticsunzipped.com. Please do take a minute to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and it would be great if you could rate and review the show and tell all your friends. At the time that Darwin was writing, there was nothing known about the nature of DNA, genes or genomes. Over the past 150 years, we've now got to a point where it's simple and cheap enough to sequence the genome of tens, hundreds or even thousands of species all around the world. Leading these efforts to sequence all the things is the Wellcome Sanger Institute outside Cambridge in the UK, which played a leading role in sequencing the first human genome. I spoke to Dan Mead, who's involved in coordinating the Sanger's 25th birthday present to itself, reading the DNA of 25 iconic British species, as well as a larger project to sequence the entire tree of life. The first question I had to ask is, why? The main idea is that if you can understand the genome of everything, you can essentially understand all of life, which is ridiculously ambitious, but that's kind of what it boils down to. In that sense, when you understand how everything's evolved and co-evolved over the four billion years that the planet's been around, you should be able to get a greater understanding, not just of the natural world, but of us as well as humans. We've obviously evolved in the same way. We've been around for the same amount of time. We've all come from, in theory, one common ancestor back in the day. I don't know if that's actually true or not, but it's certainly an idea. And it also opens up myriads of opportunities for drug discovery and material science and all of these other really exciting things. Most, I mean, loads of drugs and things come from plants and stuff. But we don't know what we could get from, from more from fungi, more from animals, all of these things. Everything's co-evolved, so there's lots of interactions which have been playing out, sort of chemical warfare races and all these sorts of things. You could, you could look into the genetics of that and how you can produce these things. And so it's just the possibilities for science are just kind of mind-boggling when you think about what we could do with all this information. I love that quote. What is it? Is the the Orgel's law like evolution is cleverer than you are? <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. It's been working on it for I said billions of years, and we've only just sort of started tinkering around the edges, looking at things that have been largely confined to laboratories for fifty years. So actually, exploring the natural world is just a phenomenal idea. I think. Apart from just the interest of knowing what's in all these species' genomes and how they might be related and how they might have evolved. What's the purpose of knowing this kind of information? What can we do with it? If you know what's there, you can use that to kind of help maintain it. For instance, if you, if you know what all of the species are and all of the genomes are in a particular country, you can then set up sort of biomonitoring stations 
which can essentially sample environmental DNA to check to see what species are present. They do this things um, for monitoring rare species in other countries. They go around and you, you can swab a paw print for a snow leopard, for instance, and see if it is actually a snow leopard. In theory, you can use the same sort of techniques to check to see that species aren't declining or if any new species are coming into areas. So all this is very useful, um, not just for conservation, but also for agriculture and monitoring effects of climate change and all these sorts of things. So the first step is knowing what's there. I think this is also interesting given the people that I've talked to in zoos who are trying to do conservation and work out, you know, what are our breeding stocks, who's related to who, how how close can we breed these species? Yes, no, absolutely. Um, when you produce a genome sequence, you can actually use certain computational methods to work out how fit a species is in terms of what's its effective population size. One of the problems is when species get into trouble and they lose a large percentage of their individuals, the genetic diversity goes down, which makes them a lot more susceptible to disease and the effects of inbreeding and cancers and all of these sorts of things. So you can find this information out from doing the genome sequencing. So in the 90s, we have projects like the Human Genome Project, and then there were a number of model organisms that researchers here at the Sanger and at other places were sequencing as well, you know, things like the mouse and the, the tiny nematode worm, C. elegans. How then, over the past decade, has that idea to sequence all the things changed and grown? I think, actually, it's largely driven by the technology itself. It's now we have the actual physical capability of doing it. Whereas I don't think even maybe two years ago, people would have been like, oh, I'm not sure if we could actually do that. But now the rate of technology is such, and has been such for a number of years now, that it's it exceeds Moore's law in terms of the actual capacity, which is one of the few things it does. So the fact that we can do it, I think is almost a good enough reason to say why we should do it. And the economy is actually working out quite well, uh, relatively speaking. The Earth Biogenome Project, which is an even bigger idea to do everything on Earth, which... All the things! All, literally all the things. Um, with an asterisk saying all the things we know about, uh, which isn't very much of a species in, in total, but a million and a half species is still a lot. They've worked out that they think it will be cheaper to sequence all of the species on Earth that we currently know about than it was to do the first human genome. Wow, that is absolutely incredible. Yeah, no, it's, it's ridiculous. It's somewhere in the region of... It cost $5 billion in today's money to do the human genome, and it took 13 years. And now we can churn out genomes, even today, without extrapolating cost reductions. And the 25 Genomes Project, we, we reckon it cost about £10,000 to do a genome to the same standard that it did to do the uh, human genome. So tell me a bit about the 25 Genomes Project. What was that all about? So Sanger actually turned 25 last year, so... We thought, what does Sanger do best? Sanger sequences things. That's kind of our, our legacy, our history. So we thought, well, we'll do 25 novel species from the UK to celebrate our 25th anniversary. What uh, kind of things are we talking about? You think about the UK and I think about, I don't know, like pigeons and foxes and you know, holly. What, what, what's in that list? No, absolutely. I agree. There's, 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 there are some things which are very UK. And we had a long discussion about what we should actually do. Um, there was talk about doing stuff just around Cambridge, around the actual Sanger Institute itself, and just going out and finding some species here. We thought about doing things from specific countries, like do something Scottish, something Welsh, something Northern Irish, something like that. So these discussions raged on in the steering group for a while. And eventually we just we narrowed it down to five different categories. So we picked an iconic category. So we did do things which are, you think, 
would be a very British thing to do. So robins, for example, that's a typical thing. And we've done golden eagles. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was, that was our first one that we completed, actually, really well. It's, it's a bird. Birds are good because they have reasonably small genomes and they're vertebrates. So they're quite similar to humans, which makes them a little bit easier to work with in terms of the actual computational side of things. So we've done an iconic thing. So we've got five in each category. So we've got iconic, we've got uh, floundering, which are things which are a little bit trouble. And we've got flourishing, which are the opposite to floundering, funny enough, things that are doing quite well. We've got cryptic, which are species which you may not be able to see or you could see them but you might not know that there's more than one type of species so for instance one of those is the pipistrelle bat which is also quite an iconic species but there's actually two or arguably three different pipistrelle bat species that look basically the same there's the common pipistrelle and there's the soprano pipistrelle it's called soprano because it calls at a slightly higher pitch. Not because it's just a bit of a diva. Well, it could very well be. It's enigmatic enough that nobody actually realised it was a separate species until 1999. So Maybe. <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. And what's, what's your final category then? Um, what have I said? Floundering, flourishing, iconic, cryptic and dangerous. Ooh. Oh, I know, dangerous. I forgot. It's almost one of the most exciting ones. Um, so that's things which could be either dangerous to us or dangerous to the uh, ecosystem or potentially dangerous. So that latter one is the, the Asian hornet, which is, uh, I know, it's, dun, like, dun, dun. it's dramatic, isn't it? The hornet community would argue that actually they're not that bad, but the honeybees would probably disagree. There's been two or three uh, nests found in the southwest of England they're obviously, as soon as they're found, they're rapidly destroyed because what Asian hornets do is they hunt and eat honeybees. OK, that's bad. That is bad, especially with the trouble that honeybees are under at the moment anyway. And because they're not native, the honeybees have no defence, essentially. In Asia, where they're from, the bees defend themselves by doing this thing called they do a bee ball, I think it's called. I know, it's amazing. What they do is they basically <laughs> just get hundreds of bees just all jump onto this hornet. A bee bundle. A bee bundle, yeah, exactly. And they beat their wings really, really fast to heat themselves up. And they essentially cook the hornet alive to kill it. It's pretty gruesome, but it's very effective. Wow. Okay, so it strikes me it would be interesting to know more about these uh, animals. Uh, but then scaling up from that, we've got the 25 species that mm -hmm. you did uh, as part of the 25 genomes. What's the next stage then, the, uh, the tree of life? So that is the idea over the next sort of 10 to 15 years is to do all of the species in the UK, which is around about 70,000. When I think of species, I think of sort of animals and plants, but is it uh, bacteria and fungi and other things as well? What comes under that banner of species? Under that banner, that is all of eukaryotes, essentially. So we won't be doing bacteria, we won't be doing viruses, but we'll be doing pretty much everything else. And I'll caveat that by saying that's everything else that we know about. So we know of around about 70,000 species in the UK, the chances are that we'll probably find more because there's various estimations about the number of species that there are in the world. Uh, and it could be that we only know 10% of the species. It could be we only know 1% of the species in the world. So there's a good chance that we'll find some in this country whilst we're actually doing this. My favourite story about this was the recent thing about Placozoa, which are these tiny little blobs, basically. I think they're the simplest animal you can get. It's just like a blob of cells. Mm. And then they did some genetic analysis and was like, hang on, this is two different species that just look like exactly the same blob of cells. Yeah, that 
that's the sort of thing that we might probably oh, no. do. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, it's the actual identification of species is going to be one of the trickiest things to do. Even things which are known, some things you can't tell them apart by looking at them. There are certain species of flies which you actually have to inspect the genitals to be able to tell what species they are. <laughs> I know. Interesting. You find these things out when you go to the Natural History Museum and talk to entomologists and they're like, oh, did you oh, know yeah, this? Yeah, I like, spent my life looking at flies' underparts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, so these sorts of things are going to be tricky, I think. And then there's stuff which is going to be symbiotically thing like that, like parkazoans. So we've got the lichens, which are basically fusions of fungi and, and algae. Um, so it's all of this stuff. It's going to be fascinating to find out and also really challenging at the same time. And that's another question is, how do you go about gathering all these species? You know, I imagine you're out with a, a butterfly net or a little Longworth <laughs> trap trying to get hold of a mole. How are you going to go about getting hold of all these samples to put through your sequences? Uh, yeah, the logistics are going to be challenging. We recognise that and it's actually one of the major things that we need to plan detail for. There's also a licensing issue as well because a lot of species are going to be protected or they live in protected areas, so we've got to work quite closely with the government and landowners and whatnot to actually be able to get access to them in the first place. One of the ideas it, we have is if we're going to target an area and then sample everything that we can find in that area, so we build up an entire ecosystem, that way we should be able to get thousands of species, they're all in the same place, we can collect them all from one place which makes everything kind of logistically easier, that way we don't have to sort of like you said, randomly walk around with butterfly nets trying to get things. One thing is actually going to be we're going to need to do is we're going to need a lot of help from taxonomists. Obviously at Sanger we, we know sequencing, but we, I couldn't tell you the difference between two different earthworm species. You've got to look at the genitals. <laughs> exactly, that's it, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and how does this kind of thing fit into the, the broader perspective? Because obviously you've got you know, 70,000 species in the UK. You've got mm. many, many more in the, in the rest of the world. So how are your efforts here fitting into maybe other efforts going on in, in other parts of the world? Yeah, like you said, there's, there's a million and a half known species which have been identified. It could be 10, could be 100 million actual species. I think the important thing that the UK effort will be is to blaze a trail for actually how this can be done. So develop the technology, develop the collection methods and the logistics trains and the sequencing methods and the informatics, which is also going to be a, another really hard challenge to do at this sort of scale. And then we can use the knowledge that we gain here to inform other countries of how they could do a similar thing. Because all of this information that we're going to be generating is all going to be open source, it's all going to be free for everybody to use all the methodologies and everything it will also be freely available and published where we can. So, yeah, we just want to enable everybody else to do the same science that we want to do. And finally, I've got two questions for you. So the first thing is, what's your favourite species? And the second one is, is there any genome that you've looked at where you've just been like, whoa, that is bizarre? I think my favourite species that we've done so far is probably the golden eagle. A, because it's cool, because it's a golden eagle. Yeah, they're cool. And also, it was the first one we did, and it worked really well. It was kind of a false dawn on how easy things would be, <laughs> but, you know, it gave us hope that these things can be done, and so that's, that's I think, my favourite so far. Um, we've had some interesting things. We've done a cricket, which is Roselle's bush cricket, just a nice 
normal looking cricket, you mm. know. We expected uh, a reasonable size, sort of genome, slightly less than humans. And then we sequenced it, and no, it's not. It's massive. The genome is two or three times bigger than what we expected it to be, uh, which makes everything much more difficult. But yeah, that was a, a bit of a, a bit of a shock and surprise. Also costly as well, because you need to do a lot more sequencing when the genomes are a lot bigger. I bet most people don't have a bush cricket messing up their budgets. That's Dan Mead from the Welcome Sanger Institute. And if you'd like to find out more about the Sanger's efforts to sequence all the things, there are some links to follow in the notes for the show at geneticsunzipped.com. Since the days of Darwin and Mendel, studies on coloration have played a vital role in deciphering the mechanisms of natural selection and genetic heredity. While this work has covered many species from all branches of the tree of life, a particularly interesting one is the grove snail, Cipaea numeralis, which comes in more colours than a pharaoh and bull paint chart. In the latest episode of the podcast from Heredity, the Genetic Society Journal, James Bergen discusses two recent papers on grove snail genetics by Angus Davison and his colleagues at the University of Nottingham. They're investigating the so-called supergenes responsible for giving these mollusks their colourful shells. There are some individuals which are almost impossible to classify as one colour or another. I suppose you might say, well, so what? Why is that interesting? But one of the weird things about this is the genes that determine the differences in these colours, we don't know what they are, but we know they're inherited in the supergene. So it's a group of linked units. And traditionally, the theory behind supergenes is that they originate to produce distinct phenotypes. And that's absolutely what we haven't got in this system. So, you know, I'm still a bit puzzled by that. And I think that maybe illustrates how ignorant we are of how natural selection and maybe also random genetic drift are acting in this system. You can hear the full interview in the latest Heredity podcast. Just search for Heredity in your favourite podcast app or follow the link from the page for this podcast at geneticsunzipped.com. That's all for now. Thanks to my guests, Dan Mead and Greg Raddick, and also Emily Mobley at the Welcome Sanger Institute. We'll be back next time looking at some more of the top 100 ideas in genetics as part of our special series celebrating the Genetic Society's centenary. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip or email me podcast at geneticsunzipped.com with any questions and feedback. Please, please do take a minute to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. And it really would be great if you could rate and review the show. And more importantly, spread the word so that more people can discover us. Genetics Unzipped is written by me, Kat Arney, and produced by First Create the Media for the Genetic Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world, dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard, our logo was drawn by James Mayle, and production was by Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye. Bye.